Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome, listeners, and thanks for joining us on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be sharing with you some of the very best paranormal stories from the men and women of law enforcement. If you've listened to the Paranormal Factor Podcast much, well, you know there are many examples in our episodes of eyewitnesses being police officers. In fact, in our very first episode, we highlighted the eyewitness account of a Socorro, New Mexico police officer as part of a spectacular UFO encounter. I always find an added amount of authenticity with law enforcement witnesses. So join us as we look into some startling paranormal sightings by police. But before we dive into the story, here's a quick reminder to check out the Paranormal Factor Podcast Facebook page. Every day, Monday through Friday, there's new paranormal and supernatural material for you to explore. Fans of the show know it's the best place to find monsters, quizzes, film, TV, and book recommendations, and current paranormal news stories from around the world. And if you have the Alexa app, hey, you can easily listen to our episodes by simply saying, Alexa, play the Paranormal Factor podcast. Now, on to our episode. Deputy Sheriff Marco Castillo has seen his share of action on the streets and in his county's lockup run by the Sheriff's Department. But he's also seen a lot more than just B&E's stolen cars and assaults. Let's allow him to explain one of his strangest encounters. I've seen a lot of things in my career, things that would make a citizen doubt my sanity, from being dispatched to chase a UFO to responding to calls of ghosts. But the most unusual thing that happened to me was witnessed by several officers and a dispatcher. One evening I had brought in a guy for domestic violence, and as he was a bit rowdy, I was joined in booking by the sergeant and another patrolman. I'm in the process of booking Mr. Tough Guy when I glanced into cell number one. Well, there's a guy in there, short haircut, glasses, a white t-shirt, just staring at us. I ignored him because I didn't want him to start banging on the window demanding a phone call or something, so I finished the booking process and escort Mr. Tough Guy to his cell, walking past cell one. The guy in the cell just stood there, never saying a word or even moving. We all then leave booking and go about our business. Sometime later, Sarge, he asked me to check the paperwork for the prisoners to see if any were ready to transport to the county jail. So I grab the paperwork and I go into booking to do a head count. Cell number one is empty. I panic and tell the sergeant, who also panics, and he and I begin to make phone calls to the detectives to see if they had moved this guy or had released him. They all say they didn't go into booking at all. I then check the computer and paperwork again and the head count was accurate. No one had been placed in cell number one. We go to the dispatch office to check the surveillance video for booking. We rewind the footage to where I can be seen booking my prisoner, and we fast forward to the point in the video where we all walk out. Well, as soon as we walk past the door, the guy in number one 
blinks out of existence. We were all freaked out by the occurrence, <laughs> believe you me. When we tried to transfer the video to a DVD and USB drive, the guy in the cell, he didn't appear at all. We still hear and see stuff every now and then, and prisoners in the detox tank can be seen talking to someone in the direction of cell one, even though it appears empty. To this day, I'm kind of wary of going into booking alone. And, of course, Marco isn't the only cop who has encountered the supernatural and the paranormal. Now, some of these men and women choose to remain anonymous to protect their existing jobs or the chances of getting a future one or a better one. Others are a bit more forthcoming. We have covered the eyewitness testimonies of cops in numerous episodes, as I stated. People like Socorro, New Mexico policeman Lonnie Zamora, who witnessed UFO occupants on the ground with their craft. So we're not going to rehash that episode here, other than to note Zamora's credibility. Like most law enforcement witnesses, it was unimpeachable. And also, like most of these professionals, he never sought fame or notoriety. Hey, but you came here for some great stories involving law enforcement eyewitnesses to the paranormal. So, let's get to them. Welfare Check from Police Officer Chuck Feel. Answered a welfare check call one night late between 2.30 and 3 in the morning on an elderly woman who lived next door to the caller and had not been seen for some time. This night we were having a bad thunderstorm without the rain. Well, I get to the complainant's house to speak to her first, wondering why she called at this time in the morning. She tells me the lady next door is in her 90s, lives alone, and she hasn't seen her in weeks. She explained that she's called, went over, knocked on her door, but the lady doesn't answer. I started thinking she's probably deceased and has been for some time. The car has a three-inch layer of dust on it, the mail's piling up, and no lights are on. First, I walk to the side door and knock on the door with my flashlight, knocking loud enough that an elderly person with some hearing issues might hear it. After a few minutes of no response, I turn around and walk to the backyard looking at the windows and find everything's okay. The complainant is with me and is saying she doesn't know of any relatives of the lady. I'm sure by now that she's probably deceased. I walk to the front of the house and notice that her blinds are up on the front windows and I can see a glow from inside. I'm, however, not tall enough to look into the windows, which were probably about seven feet off the ground. The complainant runs next door, grabs a bucket for me to stand on. So I get on the bucket and bingo, I can see in the living room. The glow was from the TV, which was on a blue screen, and it's bright enough that I didn't need my flashlight to see in. I looked first at the floor to make sure she hadn't fallen there. Couch, recliner, everything was empty. The telephone home base was blinking red with the missed calls and voicemails. From the living room was a hallway that was dark, and I couldn't see down it. Using my flashlight, I could only see an open door down that hall. Still, no signs of life. I turned around and told the complainant that everything looked okay and nothing was disturbed. I turned back around and an elderly woman is looking back at me with her face right up next to the glass. I couldn't breathe. I felt as if I'd been hit in the chest by a bat. So I fell over backwards right off of the bucket, hit the ground hard, and the complainant rushed to me. I pushed her off as she was trying to help me up and I ran back and got up on the bucket. My heart was pounding, but I had to see. Instinct had my hand on my gun. The other was up on the window. I looked back inside and I saw a frail, elderly woman standing in the hallway wearing a long nightgown with her back to me. She turned her head to the side and looked at me out of the corner of her eye 
and slowly walked out of view and down the dark hallway. I gotta tell you, that really unnerved me. I got down, I looked at the complainant who was standing there with a puzzled look on her face, and all I could say was, I saw her. By now, the wind had picked up and it began to rain. I began to walk back to my car by the road, and I turned back to the complainant and said, Don't come back here. I got into the car and drove to the PD. I never found out about the lady who lived there. The complainant didn't call back, and the house now has different tenants inside. Some things, I guess, are better left alone. Burglary in Progress from Canine Officer Josh David Was called to a burglary in progress daytime. The owner was in the kitchen and heard someone run upstairs to the third floor, old house and had wooden stairs. Set up a perimeter around the house and I came up with canine. Just as I gave canine warning, a perimeter officer saw a hand pull a curtain back on the top floor and relayed the info to me. Thinking surely we're going to make an apprehension with the canine, I sent my partner in. Well, long story short, nobody was ever found. The other officer was 100% certain he saw what he saw. And the homeowner, he was confident he heard someone running up those 12 steps. Rural Encounter from Deputy Sheriff T.J. Riggs. I work on uh, country roads and I had a signal 100 at 3 in the morning and my closest bathroom was 30 minutes out so I pulled down a dark gravel road and started my business. I felt like somebody though was watching me. Well looking toward the rear bumper of my unit and approximately 20 feet beyond my rear bumper I saw a shadow figure standing there. I stop and zip up and yell out to what I thought was a person. I got no reply from the figure. So I start to apologize, thinking this was the landowner coming to see who was peeing on their driveway, but I got no response. I then go into tack mode and demand them to show their hands and identify themselves, but no answer. I finally get smart and use my light to see who it was, and as light passes over the area, the figure was gone. Keep in mind, this conversation was about 20 seconds long, and I just saw something there. I look around, and I hear no running through the brush or anything. I turn to get into my unit, and I take one more look back, and I see a shadowy figure move toward me from where I last saw it. Well, needless to say, I got in my unit and sped off because, I mean, bullets were not going to stop that thing. Hind Legs from Police Officer Arthur Rigsby. One year, our department started receiving complaints of headstones being knocked over in the city cemetery around Halloween. Chief advised us on the midnight shift to spend our extra time around the cemetery to catch the persons causing the damage. Well, me being sneaky, I found a good hidden observation point about a block away. There were two major well-lit streets providing a fair amount of lighting into the cemetery. For several nights, I would from time to time stop and check the cemetery with my binoculars and patrol the cemetery at the start and end of my shift, as usual. One time checking the cemetery, I spotted something that, I'm not kidding, looked like a cat walking on its hind legs. I watched it walk approximately 10 feet between headstones and lost sight of it. While I rushed over to the area in my patrol car, turning on my spotlight, alley lights, and takedown lights, couldn't find a thing but a track through the dew on the grass that dead-ended at a headstone. To this day, I can remember how it moved and its outline in my binoculars. Creepy. I mean, I'm an avid hunter and I've done plenty of hunting at night. I'm very familiar with all the animals in my neck of the woods and I've never seen anything like that. 
The following stories are from anonymous police officers. I was a patrol deputy in a small Texas panhandle town in the 1990s. One winter night after a good solid snowfall, I was down the alley behind the business district checking for open doors when I saw a woman at the far end of the alley. She was about a block away, standing in the middle of the alley, looking my direction. A white female, long dark hair, wearing a long black evening dress, but no coat, gloves, or anything like that. Well, it was after midnight, and achingly cold, so I called, Miss, are you okay? She looked at me, then turned and stepped into what I knew was a recessed area behind one of the stores. So I got back in the cruiser and drove down there, expecting to find the door dock open and the kids of the owners hanging out or something like that. The door docks weren't open. None of the doors were open. And the only thing in that little recessed area was a black cat sitting on a gas meter. Well, I grabbed the flashlight and started looking around, figuring I was about to find an intoxicated girl passed out in a snowdrift. The cat hopped off the meter, rubbed against my leg, and wandered off down the alley. Then I realized that not only was there not anyone passed out in the snow, my footprints were the only ones in the fresh snow. And when I say my tracks were the only ones in the snow, the cat didn't even leave prints. I wasn't new to the tracking game. I'd tracked children across dry fields before that. Well, I got back in the cruiser and hightailed it back to the office, told the dispatcher about it, and she said, Oh, her. She's been showing up for about 20 years or so. No one has a clue who she is. You see that cat, too? I hadn't said anything about the cat. That freaked me the hell out. Well, uh, as a deputy sheriff, I was working in a rural town about 20 minutes from the main city in my county. About 1.30 in the morning, I was dispatched to a traffic accident in a canal. Uh, I arrived on scene with a California Highway Patrol officer already there to find an overturned vehicle in an empty canal. No drivers or passengers in sight. Well, at first we figured the driver left the scene after the traffic accident, but after getting a closer look, the canal floor was muddy and there were no foot impressions leaving the vehicle. We lit up the canal and took a side and started walking down the canal to see if anyone had been maybe ejected. We were about to give up when I stopped and looked over to the CHP officer on the opposite side of the canal. I asked if maybe the body was under the car. My flashlight was angled down into the canal and caught the bottom of two shoe soles with the body of a man covered in mud. I wouldn't have even seen him if it weren't for his clean soles. Being a sheriff coroner, I went out to notify his next of kin. I found an old address for the man, and at about 3 a.m. or so, I found a cluster of trailers at the address. None of the trailers, though, had address numbers. So I walked around looking for address numbers or maybe a car I could run to get an idea of what trailer you might be living in. found a car with paper plates next to a trailer, and I went to the side and attempted to run the VIN when I heard, I've been waiting for you. Startled, I turned around and shined my light onto the porch. An elderly Hispanic woman was sitting in a rocking chair in the total darkness of the porch. I'm sorry, I'm looking for, I said, and she replied without emotion, I know, my son died about two hours ago. I confirmed her son's name and asked if there was anyone with him. She said, no, he was alone. He went to a party and had too much to drink. I asked how she knew he passed and she responded, at 1.30, he came to me while I was sleeping to say goodbye and he was sorry. He told me a young cop found him and would be visiting me soon. So I got up and sat on the porch to wait for you. 
I told her I was sorry for her loss and left. I tell this story all the time and the hair on my arms stand up every time. Well, my partner and I were patrolling the old Victorian area of downtown Los Angeles around Mateo Street when all of a sudden there was a security guard screaming in fear. The security guard was so afraid, sweating profusely, crying. The man jumped in front of our squad car and we almost hit him. I asked him to relax and to tell me what happened. The security guard said, do you see that warehouse across the street there? And I said, where? He said, the one with the rusty tin roof right over there. I answered him saying, yeah, I see it. He said, well, I was doing my rounds inside the warehouse and I saw the ghost of an old woman in a dress standing in the air four feet off the floor. She pointed her index finger to me and said, if you're here one more minute, I will kill you. Her eyes were glowing red and her hair was moving in the air like there was wind inside of the warehouse. At that point, I stopped what I was doing and ran for my life out of that warehouse. We decided to ask the guard for his supervisor's number and gave him a call. Supervisor agreed to meet us, and once he arrived, he stepped away from his pickup truck and walked to us. The guard was across the street waiting. I explained to the supervisor the situation and asked him if there was a possibility that his worker was hallucinating or if he had a history of mental illness. He just laughed and said, No, 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 officer, you don't understand. Of the seven workers that went to work in that warehouse, all seven have seen the ghost of a witch, to the point four of them asked to be relocated to a different post, and the remaining three resigned because they refused to work there again. I asked my partner, Hey, do you feel like taking a peek in there? He said, Hell no. So, nice ghost stories, those. But our police have also encountered cryptids and UFOs. Let's give a listen to some more stories. From an anonymous police officer. One night, uh, quite a few years back, while working a medium-sized county as a road deputy, I had a reserve officer riding with me on the shift, and we were just outside of the largest city in the county near an old air base. We had stopped to stretch our legs and take a nature break, and it was around 3 a.m., plenty dark away from town, and really a beautiful, clear and mild night. As we were talking and looking up at the night sky, something caught my eye. Due west, there was a bright white light of good size that appeared to be, from my angle of view, maybe 200 yards above the treetops and several miles away. What caught my eye was it was changing colors. I know at night stars appear to be flickering different colors at times, especially if you're staring at them, but this was not a flicker. This object was slowly changing colors. White at first, then it faded into a bright red, and stayed that color for about two minutes and then it faded into blue again for about two minutes. Well this went on for about ten minutes as we watched it so it was no plane. Their marker lights flash anyway. Well after about fifteen minutes it started to move slow at first side to side then up and down. And this was very noticeable as it moved quite a ways. You could tell by using the stars in the background for reference. It moved this way for a little bit, then stopped and did a loop or a circle and then went back stationary. Then while I was watching, it appeared to just move up rather quickly, about a couple hundred yards, and then as if turning away, it was gone. Now about five or six years ago, a gentleman contacted me saying he was a UFO investigator and asked if we could meet. I told him my story. He said a couple of neighbors had also given him statements about it, and he explained a law enforcement officer gave the sighting more credibility. 
You know, at the time of the incident, I didn't think a whole lot about it, but for some reason, now, this kind of shakes me up a little bit. This UFO incident was submitted through the officer.com forums by username Interceptor. Posted August 13th, 2015. Location, Indian Land, South Carolina. Shape of UFO triangular. Duration of sighting, one minute. Witness same triangular-shaped craft reported earlier in Weddington on Wednesday, August the 5th, 2015, between 10 and 11 p.m. while on patrol, I observed a triangle-shaped craft with three red lights on it. It was traveling at a high rate of speed near Indian Land, South Carolina, and Waxhaw, North Carolina. The craft was traveling southbound, just east of Highway 521 in Indian Land, and west of the Providence Road in Waxhaw. At first, I thought it was a private aircraft due to several airports in the area, but as I work nights, I'm familiar with the regular approach and departure patterns for the airport. This craft was low and traveling at a very high rate of speed, much faster than a normal aircraft. The body of the craft appeared black and triangular, and I was unable to make out any detail or cockpit. I did not hear any sound from the craft. I'm reporting this after hearing the other report from the Weddington-Wesley Chapel area in North Carolina, which is literally just over the border. I am convinced that I witnessed the same triangular craft that was reported by numerous civilians at that time. The following is told by Jamie Dew, a patrol officer from Maine. I was on patrol. It was 3.30 to 4 a.m. in the morning, I guess, and a bit foggy. Indian Island is about 24 square miles. It doesn't take long to go around it with all the roads. On the island, there's a pond called the Pond. I was driving around the pond, and I saw this woman coming out from the pond dressed all in white. I thought it was somebody that worked in a hospital that was just going to work and was walking up from the pond for some reason headed to her car and to the hospital or whatever. That's what I thought when I first looked at her. She had like a white jacket, like a sports coat. When I was closer to her, I called it in and said, listen, I got this lady coming up from the pond. I can't remember the street. I told dispatch, I don't know if she's off her meds or what the story is, but I'm going to be off here for a bit. I was sitting in the car and she was coming up and getting closer and closer and closer. I was kind of vulnerable at that spot. I should have jumped out, but all of a sudden, she didn't give me a chance. She was 25 feet away, and the next thing you know, she was in my pocket. I was still in drive. Back then, I drove a Chevy Impala, and the shift was on the column. So I put my foot on the brake and put it in park. You know, it's just instinct to look to make sure you're in park before you take your foot off the brake. I think everyone does that. Well, the nanosecond I did that and looked back, she was gone. I was looking all around. She wasn't there. So I'm kind of getting freaked out. I jumped out of the car. I looked around the car, underneath the car, and there was just nobody there. Then I realized, holy cow, I think I just saw a ghost. I didn't see her feet. I didn't see her face. Her face was blurred. I know she had white hair, and I knew she was wearing that jacket. This is another thing, her garments. Her lapels and bottom of her jacket flapped a bit, kind of like there was a wind, like it was breezy, just going back and forth. But there was no breeze at all. 
My brain is thinking, okay, I just saw this woman come up from the pond. Her jacket was moving. I didn't see her feet, and I couldn't see her face. She went from being 25 to 30 feet away with plenty of time for me to get out of the cruiser, but within a snap of the finger, she was looking right at me. Again, I, I couldn't make any facial features out. I was freaked. The rest of the summer, I hung out by the pond a lot, a lot at the wee hours of the morning, hoping to see her again. But I never did. I never saw her again. As contributed by Deputy Retired James Atkin. The complainant was an elderly man and his wife who lived on a remote farm in rural Pike County, Georgia. It seems that he had been experiencing a prowler on and off for several weeks. However, the prowler was never actually clearly seen. Neither was there evidence to corroborate whether there actually was anyone or anything causing real disturbance. I'd arrive at the home, I'd exit the patrol car, and I'd smell the monster, as the old man liked to describe this intruder. The smell I then attributed to the swamp or a nearby neighbor's livestock. Then, after exiting the car, it was a quick walk up the steps, and I'd knock on the door, as he wouldn't open the door until he heard a human voice. He was an elderly man, and his vision was failing him. Did you see anything when you came in? He'd ask. No, sir, I'd reply. Well, it's been at it tonight. It was tapping on the house, and it was trying to see us in here. It even came to the front and was trying to open the doorknob, the complainant would say. Then, after some brief discussion, I'd sweep around the outside of the house, look over the yard area. Generally, I'd see nothing. Mostly, though, I smelled that awful smell, like a pig pen with wet dog and rotting garbage all combined but never anything substantial in the terms of physical evidence. I'll admit that I was often spooked when I did the normal prowler survey. The hair on my arm would stand up, and I'd have that feeling, you know, being watched. Then I'd check back with the homeowner, report that I had found nothing, and I'd go back into service. So this scenario was repeated over the several months. I was a sworn deputy, and it was my duty to answer all calls and provide service. I attempted to take it all seriously, but... In all honesty, I had my doubts about the veracity of his complaints. At the very least, I thought some natural phenomenon was causing him alarm and that he was mistaking it for some kind of human presence. In fact, it slowly was escalating with intensification of nighttime activities and an increase in the level of threat toward this elderly couple. He stated that between the hours of 12 a.m. and 6 a.m., a strange light tapping would take place on the exterior of his home. Strangely, he shared that his small chihuahua peanut would hide under the living room couch or under the covers of their bed, seemed peanut was terrified of the unknown exterior intruder. He described how it was as if all the normal nighttime sounds of crickets and tree frogs would cease when the drumming sound would start. He began to notice that someone or something was attempting to see into the interior of the home. His sight was failing, but he could catch glimpses of a head or a half of a face. He described it as an ape-man, looking into the windows of his home. Later, he and his wife would often turn out the lights within the home and sit in a central hallway. They could watch the intruder move from window to window in an attempt to find where they were located within the home. In time, the old man began to report that the nighttime intruder was whispering to them through the walls of his house. He described it as a guttural, deep sort of rumbling sound. He stated that this would often turn into a huffing sound and 
on occasion to scream. Well, I asked the old man if the intruder ever said anything he could understand. He shared that once the intruder had emulated his way of calling the small dog. He said it had growled out very low. Peanut. Well, one morning I walked behind his home toward the creek. I had asked him for permission to walk further back onto his land to see if I could find any tire tracks or sign of people along the creek. Uh, once I reached the creek, I walked along the bank for a bit, and I saw a place where something had crossed the creek. I could plainly see several large footprints that were huge. Well, my mind reeled at the possibility of such a creature actually existing. I still sought a practical human explanation for these events. I figured it was a hoax, so I took a cast and promptly left. Well, later after examination, it was confirmed by Dr. Jeff Meldrum of Idaho State University to be an actual example of a Bigfoot track. And Mr. Jimmy Chilcutt, forensic fingerprint expert, examined the cast and stated that it contained primate biological identifiers and skin markings. So it really had been some kind of creature. Frankly, the incident changed my view of our world and altered what I had perceived as reality. Before this incident, my world didn't contain any non-human monsters. The following story comes from the UK. Silbury Hill is a prehistoric artificial chalk mound near Avebury in the English county of Wilshire. It is part of the Stonehenge, Avebury, and other associated World Heritage Sites. It seems an unnamed off-duty police sergeant was driving along a road near Solbury Hill in July of 2009 when he saw what looked like three forensic officers. They were dressed in white coveralls and standing in a field and staring at something on the ground. Stopping to investigate, he noticed all three of the figures he was seeing were over six feet tall and had blonde hair. While approaching them, he also heard what sounded like static electricity echoing through the field. When the individuals noticed him, they sprinted out of sight faster than any human would be able to do. According to the sergeant, the three beings were inspecting a crop circle that had appeared in the field a few days earlier. The sergeant decided to contact UFO experts. Crop circle researchers Andrew Russell and Colin Andrews investigated the incident on behalf of the terrified officer. The Wilshire police station had no comment on the sighting, stating it was a personal matter because the sergeant was off duty at the time of the incident. Russell and Andrews, however, are convinced that the policeman saw something out of this world. And these cases are just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. For every example you heard, there are literally thousands of others that have been reported. Cops are trained observers, so when I hear a cop heard or saw something maybe paranormal, I take it seriously, says Karen Stevens, author of Haunted Montana and several other books featuring spooky tales. Unfortunately, most of them don't like to talk about it, Stevens says. Can you disbelieve these eyewitness accounts? Sure you can. Just as with ordinary witnesses to the paranormal, sometimes all we have is their word that they saw what they claim they did. But I tend to elevate their truthfulness and authenticity a little bit more, partly due to their advanced training. What does that mean? It means they're highly observant, keenly objective, and their ability to recall those observations is exceptional. They have a healthy skepticism born from lies and exaggerated stories that they too often encounter. 
and due to the danger of their profession, they have a steely resolve and they don't rattle easily. So yeah, I tend to trust these accounts a little bit more. And it kind of makes sense that they would be more susceptible to seeing the unusual, right? Who else is going to be at a cemetery at 3 a.m. on a nuisance call? Who else is going to go to a scary deserted old house to check for trespassers? And who else is patrolling a lonely, dark, and isolated road in the middle of nowhere in the dead of night? Their chances are better than most to experience the weirdness we all know is out there. A cryptid running across a road. A UFO rising from a field. A ghostly apparition at the end of a deserted hallway. And consider this. Even with the myriad of stories that have been disclosed by police officers, there may be thousands more we will never hear, that they will never share, that we'll never know about. Well, listeners, thank you for your continuing support. Your patronage is so appreciated. Now I need your patience as well. I need to take a short hiatus this summer to take care of some important personal matters. So we'll be airing again some of our best episodes over our past seasons. These come straight out of our top 10 most listened to episodes. If you've missed any or want to enjoy them again, please give them a listen. And I'll be giving each a short updated introduction. And don't worry, I'll be back in a few weeks with brand new episodes of the show. Starting with a scary encounter with the Flintville Monster. Right here on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time... For the episode quiz. It is quiz time. So here we go. The Gumbaroo is what kind of monster? Is it A, a Bigfoot? B, a cat-like cryptid? C, a bear-like cryptid? Or D, a Louisiana vampire? Once again, the Gumbaroo is what kind of monster? Is it a Bigfoot? A cat-like cryptid? A bear-like cryptid? or a Louisiana vampire? And the answer is... C. A bear-like cryptid. The Gumbaroo is a formidable creature reported by lumberjacks in Western America in the 19th and early 20th centuries and was used to explain sudden forest fires. The Gumbaroo is said to look like a fat black bear in shape and completely hairless except for its prominent eyebrows and bristly hairs on its chin. Instead, it has dark, smooth, and extremely tough, coal-black, leather-like skin. This makes the Gumbaroo impenetrable to bullets, rocks, and arrows. Anything shot at the beast will bounce off. Its main weakness is said to be fire, with the scarcity of Gumbaroos possibly due to their combustible character and the prevalence of forest fires. The animal burns like celluloid, with explosive force, legend says. Frequently during and after a forest fire in the heavy cedar near Coos Bay, woodsmen insisted they heard loud sounds, unlike the sound of falling trees, and detected the smell of burning rubber in the air. The creature appears to be rather rare. They're reported to be spread all along the coast from Washington State down to California. Gumbaroos make their dens in the bases of huge, burned-out cedar trees along the Pacific coast from Grays Harbor to Humboldt Bay. The creature spends most of its time in a state of hibernation, only leaving its lair a few times a year to search for food. Apparently, it is in a permanent state of hunger and capable of eating enormous amounts in a single setting. They're even said to be able to devour a whole horse at a time. 
Thankfully, there's no report of them ever eating a human. And fortunately for you, it's also not swift in its movements or annoyed in the slightest degree by the presence of enemies, including humans. In other words, it appears to be a gentle giant. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.